May I invite your attention now to the first chapter of the book of Joshua. One of my favorite books, uh, it's, it's all about this swashbuckling military giant, uh, and I like stuff like that. And it's a piece of history, and yet it is far more. So you follow. By the way, in our study of this book, we're not going to go. We'll probably try to get a a message out of each chapter. There's some chapters in later on where the land is being divided up that we'll somewhat skip. Um, just trying to draw the real best out of the book. So you follow as I read the first nine verses of Joshua chapter 1. Here we go. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, I'm not sure that you noticed, uh, or perhaps you've never noticed before, but these opening nine verses that I just read you are almost entirely a direct speech on the part of God directed to Joshua, giving Joshua instructions, telling him that he is to begin the war, which would ultimately secure the land that God had promised to Abraham way back in Genesis 15. Moses is dead, he says in verse 2, so you need to wait. No, he doesn't say that. Moses is dead, so you need to weep. No, I didn't say that either. Moses is dead. Now, you get going. Moses may die, but my promises don't die. 
Moses may not be on the scene. Moses, the incomparable leader, but um, I've made a promise and it's about to be fulfilled. That, uh, that land that you see over there across that river, all of it belongs to you and I'm giving it to you by way of gift. It's going to be yours, just as I promised to Abraham in Genesis 15. And everything that you're going to need, everything that is necessary for you to take over that land, I'm going to provide for you. So, be strong and courageous. He says that four times and get going. But it's interesting, at least to point out initially, that... What you're seeing in Joshua is really the accomplishment of something that was said in Genesis 15. The, the, uh, the, the vitality of this book, Joshua, is rooted into the soil of Genesis 15 when God promised Abraham a land. And here, it's about to come to fruition. God's promises live on. And they never evaporate in the face of difficulty and funerals. But there's still this question of leadership. Moses' death has left a vacuum. How will that vacuum be filled? How will the job ever get done? it's It's a big issue. How are God's people now to be led that Moses is gone? And this text, these nine verses that I read to you, tells you a couple of things about what that's going to look like. That is, what is leadership of God's people going to look like uh, now that Moses is gone. From here on, what is it going to look like? What does it require? What does it it look like? There's two things that I want to point out about it. There's kind of a divine side and then there's a human side. Let me point those two things out and that's all I'm going to do today. Just First of all, there's a divine side. He starts with that by saying to him in verse 5, I will be with you. Um, now guys, that's no small favor, or that is, uh, that God is going to be with them. That's, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, you know, uh, I can get things done. So can you. You're, there's a bunch of, there's some leadership males and females in this room. We can get things done without anybody helping us. But once we do, haven't you noticed? Haven't you noticed that once we get it done, we realize, oh my goodness, I got it done and it's done nothing but complicate my life. It's brought, it's brought some kind of difficulty, some kind of complexity, some kind of pain, but I got it done. But when God leads, things seem to work better. When, when life works better, when God, when what we're doing is simply following the leadership of God as opposed to taking matters into our own hands and getting something done. So what we're promised here, or what Israel is promised here, is, is that, that sweet presence of God. And interestingly, Moses had been promised the same thing. Moses, that reluctant excuse making, pass the buck kind of guy. When, um, when God asked Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt, there was a problem. Pharaoh. Um, but as you know, Pharaoh got swept aside. But now in Moses' replacement, there's another problem. A river. A river that stands between Israel and the promised land. And not only the river... Over there in that promised land, 
It is occupied. It's got some Hittites in it. <laughs> Lots of them. And um, it's going to be conquered just the way just the way Pharaoh was uh, conquered. Just like in the case of Moses, Pharaoh was dealt with not because of Moses' prowess. And the Hittites and this river is going to be dealt with based on the promise that God has already made that I'm going to be with you. No man's going to stand before you. I'm going to be with you. Moses is gone. But the kind of commitment that God had made to Moses, he now makes to Joshua. He promises his presence just as he had been with Moses. And and I want to suggest, just as an aside, guys, that that same kind of promise is made to us. We're, We're going to talk about that a little bit later. But here's what I want you to notice, guys. God's promised, this promise of his presence is not made indiscriminately. There are terms. (laughs) That is, you can't take that presence of God for granted. God has expectations. He's got some directions and, and he outlines those in this text, which kind of brings us to the human side of this whole leadership uh, formula. There is a divine side and the divine side is, um, I will be with you. But that promise is not made indiscriminately. It is, it is, it comes with some instructions. It comes with some requirements, if you will. And um, those instructions are outlined for us in verses 7 through 9. And I want to go back and I want to read verses 7 through 9 to you again. So if you've still got your Bibles open, take a look with me at verses 7 through 9. Let me read that. He says, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law of Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then... You will have good success. Heaven, I commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Do you see that combination in there, ladies and gentlemen, in verses 7 and 8, 7, 8 and 9? You get going. You be strong. You be courageous. You go get them. Because I'm going to be with you everywhere you go. However... You have a book in your hands. And that book is not to depart from you, and you're not to depart from the right to the left. That thing is supposed to give to you instructions as to how you might enjoy, not success, but good success. Oh, success. 
Oh, don't we all want bunches of that stuff? Yes, successful. That's what I want to be. But ladies and gentlemen, according, it seems, to this text, not all success is good success. Well, there's success, and then there's good success. Not all prosperity is good prosperity. Some of it tricks us. Some of it ruins us. Sometimes God curses us with prosperity. Guys, um, this lust for success can damn you if you've wrongly defined success. You see, guys, we as the people of God, we don't, we're, we're supposed to not want success. We're supposed to want good success. And, and let me say this before we go another step. If what I'm about to say from this text is going to be any benefit to any of us at any time, it's going to be determined by the way that you define success. If in your mind, the term success has all of those dollar signs associated with it, then you might as well take a nap. You might as well work on your grocery list because what I'm about to say is going to be little, if any, benefit for you. But if down deep, there is in you a longing for something something different, something that Israel used to call shalom, I think she still does call it shalom. It's a, it's a kind of inner serenity, kind of an inner wholeness, kind of a, a sense of satisfaction over life and, and what it's dealt you. If that's what you want, then you need to listen closely. You see, guys, one of the bigger dangers that faces um, us Christians is that we have far too much success of the wrong kind. We um, we look to ourselves and trust in the arm of the flesh and all of our education and our capabilities and our people skills and all that business. And then we arrive only to discover that we're still empty. You know, I asked this question uh, back in early October. I'm going to ask it again. Those of you who have experienced some measure of corporate success, those of you who have got some degree of financial safety and financial security, those of you who have ex- tasted some of that, real, let me ask you, has it made you as happy as you thought it would? Has it brought you the kind of Serenity that you had hoped for. You feel any safer? Do you feel like life is better because you made it? The point I'm making, guys, is we start off with the wrong definition of success. And then from there we go to trusting in all of our human Abilities. And then once we get there, we, we're still empty. 
we're still we're still unwhole. Because, ladies and gentlemen, not all success is good success. There's success and then there's good success. And we're not after the other stuff. And if that's what you've lived your life for, you're going you're gonna to be sadly disappointed, I'm afraid. Guys, um, Joshua, when he takes over this rabble, he, um, he knew of all the difficulties that Moses had, had faced when he was leading this rebellious bunch. You know, Joshua didn't exactly inherit a, uh, a well-oiled military machine, a bunch of united guys that are for a, for a common cause. But what he inherited is a bunch of people who had proved themselves over and over again to be unfaithful to the God that got them out of Egypt. And in the face of all that, God says, get going. And then in verses 7, 8, and 9, he tells him how this is going to, what it's going to look like. And what is required of him as he leads God's people into some kind of military conquest. You know, as if, as if the military task of conquering seven hostile nations wasn't enough, Joshua is faced with other issues that are complicated. He's got to, later on, he's got to divide up the land equally among 12 tribes. But ultimately, folks, the, the, the real issue is setting the, the course of a nation, setting this people of Israel on the right course spiritually, which was a constant challenge to Joshua throughout his life. And the book is going to close with him still facing that challenge. You know, guys, to, to conquer this promised land required the talent of a military commander. To, to divide it up over the 12 tribes is really, was really an issue of, of, of trigonometry. But to settle this nation on a, on a higher sense, to, to, to create a moral affinity between them and their God, to, to turn these people's hearts to the covenant of their fathers, to, to wean them from all of those foolish idolatries and, and establish inside of them such habits of heart that obedience and trust became second nature to them. That that was the challenge. But God doesn't leave him clueless as to how that's supposed to be done. He is to concentrate, that is Joshua, is to concentrate not on military strategy, not on armaments, not on training. He is told what it is that will lead them to good success. And isn't that what we want? I mean, tell me, wouldn't you, wouldn't you trade some of that portfolio of yours for peace in your family? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you trade some of those Rolex watches that you wear? Wouldn't you trade those for a marriage that's sweet and fruitful and fun? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you give 
a whole lot of what you possess if life just worked better? Well, guys, how is that ever to be done? (laughs) It's right in here. It's right here. It's instructions given to Joshua. And and I want to show them to you. And then I'll shut up. What are the instructions that God gives to Joshua? Here they are. It's just summarized in my, paraphrased in my own words. Careful. Detailed. Meticulous. Adherence. To the law of God. This is to be a manual of instruction for warfare of any kind that Joshua may confront. You know, guys, one of the challenges that I face, we preacher types, somebody, people who love this book. One of the challenges, perhaps maybe the biggest challenge that I face, is to how to shape what you think about this book. Well, you know, it's the... It's the thing that uh, preachers get all their sermons out of. Yeah, it is. It is that. Well, it's uh, it's uh, it's the book that uh, you know we study on Sunday in, in our classes. Yeah, it's that too. But, ladies and gentlemen, it is far, far more than just that. It is a manual defining success, good success for this life. And for the next one, gang, if I loved you, and I do, if I loved you, what I would give you is a healthy, steady, regular diet of exposure to the precepts and the instructions of this book. Because in here, ladies and gentlemen, everything that you need for life and godliness is contained. This book, not not his sword, not his education, not his people skills, not his corner office, was to be Joshua's main equipment for leadership. Did you see it? It's in verses 7 and 8. Here, Joshua, I'm not worried about how sharp your sword is. I'm not worried about all the um, the uh, things that you've got to build so that you can breach the walls. Here's what I want you to do. you got a book, and you are to... Um, um, be careful to do all according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from the left to the right or the right to the left, and then you'll find good success. Not much of a military strategy, is it? You know, later on, when David becomes king, he says the same thing to his, when he's dying, he says the same thing to his son Solomon. Almost the same words. And then, 3,000 years later, there's a preacher in Germantown, Tennessee, he's going to tell you the same thing. Guys, life, life temporal, this one, 
and life eternal is to be based on the instructions and on the on the definitions on the wisdom that you find in this book if you gather wisdom and instructions from some other source you're going to find that you have been misled. Guys, God's promised presence to this people is based on their having minds that are shaped and governed by the instructions and the insights and the wisdom and the definitions that are contained in this book. We're not free to pick and choose as to what we like and don't like, which is really one of the major themes of this book. Um, All of it is to be the thing that, that guides us what, what, what life is, ladies and gentlemen, is it's to be a, a thing that is managed and lived based on promises that we have found God given to us in the, in the pages of this book. Promises that we believe, promises that we believe more than our emotions, and consequently we make decisions, we make choices based on the promises that we have been given by God, and ultimately that all shows up as obedience to God, which then leads to good success. Gang, gang, notice notice what it says um, in verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. It, It doesn't say, you know, you need to read your Bible about seven minutes every morning so that you can get the thought for the day. It says that we are to meditate on the on the precepts that are found here. Joshua, you want to lead this people right? Do you want this people to experience success and good success? Is that what you want? Then here's the way to do that. Take this book. Obey it. Don't turn to the right or the left and meditate on the precepts that you find there. Guys, meditation is far different than reading. It's it's the difference between like cooking meat in a crock pot and broiling it. Meditation is slow, it's thorough, it's meticulous. It means some mature reflection on, on things that God has said. But lo and behold, we're too busy for that. So no wonder we are um, we're so disobedient. Um, guys, you know I would say that one of the issues that is so vital in our lives—not that we're a bunch of wicked people—we're not a bunch of wicked people. 
I don't think you're wicked people. But what we are is overscheduled. God calls us to no activity that would crowd out those things that are necessary for our souls. And I would add this. I don't think the issue is that we lack time. I think the issue is that we don't have the heart for this. And because we don't, we can all point to cracks and crevices in the foundation of our lives. We can point to bad choices and bad decisions about which we will all admit if we had only listened we would have avoided so much of this pain. Guys, this might sound odd, but Bible study doesn't make you more spiritual. Bible study makes you more successful. The right kind. Because what it does is It gets me in touch with the mind of God and I begin to think his thoughts after him. Joshua was to be guided and governed wholly by the written word of God. This book was above Joshua. He answered to it, not it to him. And so do we. That is, this book is above us. We answer to it. It doesn't answer to us. God doesn't say to Joshua, hey, listen, Joshua, see if you can't remember all that Moses taught you. Joshua had in his hands an objective standard for truth and for falsehood on which he was to meditate. The result being the presence of God who leads us comes alongside us in the midst of our struggles and helps us make decent, better decisions, the end result being success. Good success. Guys, spiritual leadership is made behind closed doors. But for the rest of us who aren't leaders... Success is made behind closed doors, too. It's made when you and I determine that the priority is that we know God and what he's said. I mean, who, who, needs, who needs Hittites when, you've, when you're plagued with a recession? You know, the, the only point I'm making is, guys, we've got a set of problems ourselves. And my fears at times absolutely consume me. And those fears are to be addressed by listening to what God has to say about me, where I am, and what I should do. And He says, be strong and be courageous. In human terms, Joshua had everything, every right in the world to be afraid. And so may you. But the strategy, 
The strategy for managing this thing that God has given me called life is a meditation on this book. Why? Because in here, I find the mind of God. And I need that more than I know. Can I read you just one statement? This is out of Psalm 119. The psalm is just one quick verse. He says, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. If your law had not, if your statutes, if your precepts, if your testimonies, had not been my delight, I dare to think, I fear to think, what my circumstances would have led me into. That's what he says. Guys, the centrality of Yahweh's word, that's what was to guide Joshua, that's what is to guide us, it is to be the heartbeat of Christian living and spiritual leadership. It is where good success is taught and defined. Can I give you a suggestion? You, um, you're busy. I'm going to give you a quick way to pick up an hour, an hour a day. I'm not telling you to eliminate television, just 30 minutes of it. I'm not asking you to eliminate Facebook, just 30 minutes of it. 30 minutes less on Facebook, 30 minutes less on on television, that adds up to an hour. And that hour is going to be given to a meditation on what God has said. Guys... The definition of success is in here, and the definition, that definition for success points out that the first step is a saving commitment to Jesus Christ. A real or a realization that my sin has separated me from a God who has every right in the world to banish me. And secondly, the discovery that this offended God has himself made a way for me to be forgiven and restored through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is step number one. And if you haven't taken that step yet, then no amount of knowledge of this book is going to help you when you stand before God. If it is God you want to know, it is through Christ that God wills to make himself known. And that Christ is sought and found within the pages of the biblical gospel. as recorded in this book. Our Father, I I do pray that you will remind all of us that there is an expectation that you have of your people.
an expectation that leads us out of falsehood, leads us out of error, leads us out of poor decision-making, and and helps us unravel the complexities that we face. Oh God, so many of us could say, had your law not been our delight, we would have exploded in the midst of our difficulties. So Father, would you give appetites where appetites do not exist? Lord, it's not a question of making people feel guilty because ultimately that guilt will wane in a matter of minutes. Give us all a heart for this. Give us, give us the, a conviction that the way to sort some of the complexity out that we face is going to happen as we find out more about who you are what you've said, what you love, what you hate, and how you lead. Father, if you've brought people in here this morning who have not yet taken the first step of a commitment to Jesus Christ, would you would you cause them to see that there awaits them a life that is different? Not a life absent of pain, but a life that's different with more meaning, more certainty, more serenity, and more approval from heaven that we are loved. Now, Father, in the midst of steadfast love, stir your people to newer convictions. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.